Lord, we trust your presence is with us. We don't have to ask for you to be with us. You just are. You're with us when we are asleep. You're with us when we wake up. Your mercy is new every morning. And we thank you for that. Lord, thank you for calling us together to gather here around this table in this building. And I just ask, Lord, that your spirit would, would move through freshly, that you would speak, and that you would give us what we need to hear from you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, well, this last month or so, we have been discussing some of the aspects of spiritual formation. And our preaching team has been prompting us with questions like, what are the practices that have contributed to our formation, our spiritual development? Who are the people that have been on our paths, people past, people present, that have played significant roles in our spiritual formation? What does scripture have to say about the spiritual journey, including the parts that we don't always uh, understand or can't always predict, like suffering or laments or disruption of other kind? And this term, spiritual formation, this can be sort of a catch-all. It can be defined and understood in various ways. So for our purposes today, let me see if I can sort of ground us in a definition and offer some shared language for what we're talking about when we're talking about spiritual formation. As I understand it, spiritual formation is this process that we go through as believers, as followers of Jesus, whereby we grow in Christ-likeness. It's a becoming process, a process that follows our choice to follow. It's developmental, and it's a journey that increasingly shapes us to become more and more uh, like the image of God that we see in, in Jesus, in Christ. So that would be becoming more loving, becoming more generous, more hospitable, more joyous, more hopeful, more patient. It's a sign of a true disciple. Sometimes the word discipleship gets used interchangeably with the term spiritual formation. I don't think that's the worst thing in the world, uh, but to me there's a little bit of nuance. I understand discipleship to be this intentional choice that we make to put ourselves behind Christ, to walk the narrow way, right? To turn our will and our lives over to God to be used for his purposes. That to me is discipleship, where spiritual formation, on the other hand, is what starts to happen to us then. What starts to happen to us when we do that, when we choose to follow day after day. It's a transformation process, and it does change lives, I believe. It changes lives. It's somewhat organic. It's quite mysterious, uh, but I believe it. I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen it in the lives of other people. Okay, so you tracking along with me there? A little bit of the distinction. Jeremiah is going to be with us. He's here this week. Mary C., did you meet Jeremiah? Okay. <laughs> Jeremiah and Sarah are with us this week. It's nice to see you both, but Jeremiah will be preaching next week, and the two of us have already been dreaming and scheming a little bit about teaching direction for the fall, and we're going to stay focused on this theme of discipleship and formation and really look at that closer, and I, I'm excited to know, uh, see what Jeremiah brings to that conversation. I know it's going to be good. Um, but for this morning, I want to just zero in on an area of our formation that I think is critical as our development uh, as disciples, critical to our development as disciples. And I will say that it's one that in my own experience I haven't always seen as critical. Uh, what I want to talk about this morning are rhythms of rest and renewal. Rhythms of rest and renewal. By a show of hands, how many of you here right now feel rested? Okay. 
All right, how many of you feel some shade of tired, weary, worn out, fed up? <laughs> okay. For those of you who are rested, the four of you, uh, <laughs> what I was going to say, Dane, is for those of you who are rested, I'm really glad. I'm really glad. And I want to encourage you to savor that. That is a gift. Savor that. Feel it. That's a wonderful thing. <laughs> Maybe those two go hand in hand. We'll see. Um, but for those of you who are on the other end of that spectrum, who are feeling some shade of, of weariness or, or worn downness, uh, I'm not glad that you feel that way, but I am comforted to know that I'm not the only one. And the good news is that you came to the right place this morning for nourishment. There are many things you could have done on a Sunday morning, and you came uh, to the water source, I think, that is, uh, is where we find our true rest and nourishment. So that's a step in the right direction. I don't know about you all, but I often come through those doors Sunday morning kind of limping. Uh, limping, actually, sometimes I come to Friday mornings kind of just limping, just with the weariness and all of the things that happen over the course of a week. Just looking, I'm always just looking for something, anything that's going to offer some kind of refreshment or nourishment. Like you, I get tired. I feel empty. I need sources that renew strength again uh, in order to keep walking this pathway of faith for the long haul. And at the same time, I think sometimes uh, conversations around rest and renewal, these aren't always popular. Um, we don't always like to talk about them, but I think it's important. And so this morning, I, wanted, I want us to take a closer look at our own lives. And I want us to look towards scripture as well. We're going to look in the Gospel of Mark this morning. But I want us to get curious together and, and get honest with ourselves about this question. When it comes to practicing rhythms of rest, how is that going for me? When it comes to practicing rhythms of rest, how is that going for me? All right, you with me on this? Are you up for it? It won't be too taxing. It won't be too rigorous. That would be too ironic, considering our, our topic for this morning. Um, but let me start just by sharing a small part of my own story, um, and then we're going to look towards the Gospels, as I said, to see what Jesus has to offer us in this regard. Um, I've been reflecting a lit, uh, quite a lot this past month or so on my college years, and I uh, shared this with some of you. I visited my mom and dad earlier this week, and there's something about being in your adolescent bedroom that sends you into a bit of a reflective mode anyway. But I've been thinking about my college years, I think because life is coming back into that campus, DJ is stepping into new professorial rhythms, so it's just sort of been on the brain. And as I've looked back, I've been thinking and asking the question, during my four and a half years of undergraduate education, how was I formed? How was I formed? And specifically, how was my relationship to work and rest formed or being shaped during that time? And let me just share a little bit about that with you. I went to design school. That's my formal training. I went to a small art college in the center of Detroit. And it was wonderful for me. It was a really good fit. I loved learning about design. I loved practicing design. I still do. The thing, however, about that setting was that it was very rigorous and it was very competitive. And that, coupled with my already high-achieving, high-performing, um, highly-driven personality, that was a bit of a dangerous cocktail for me. I was an RA for a few years in the dorms, and I can't tell you how many 3 a.m. exacto knife emergencies I had to respond to because most of us stayed up all hours of the night trying to uh, finish our studio projects. During that time of my life, busyness was sort of worn as a badge of honor. We competed for who could stay up the longest. And I think 
I don't know, but I think that this was a time in my life where I was beginning to associate my value and my worth as a human, as a person, with my levels of productivity and with the quality of my output. I was good if the work was good. I was okay if things were going okay in the classroom. And so needless to say, this wasn't a time where I was learning much about the importance of rest, not just on one's human life, but on the development of a soul as well. And after college, I thought these habits would, would shift. Um, I thought that this habit of pushing beyond my human limitation might change in some way, and I was disappointed that I was stepping into an industry that really uh, offered nothing different. In my early 20s, I worked in a design studio in Chicago, and I loved that studio. It was a dream job for me. I was so happy to do it, even just taking $15 an hour, coming in as a junior in the city of Chicago. It was, it was wonderful, and I was so grateful for the opportunity. I performed well. I did what I was asked to do. I followed orders. I carried the responsibility. I was given the best that I could, and so it didn't take too long for my leaders to ask me to start to stay late. Can you stay till 7? Can you stay till 8? We've got to get this done. And I was happy to do it. And that was starting to become a pattern. And then soon, 7 or 8 p.m. turned into 11 or 12 midnight. And that was becoming the norm. And so here I was, a young woman, alone in a downtown office in Chicago, sitting at an iMac, as if that was the most important thing I could possibly do with my time. That rhythm became the norm, and I didn't think anything of it because my pals who worked at the studio up the street, they would stay till 2 or 3 a.m. So comparatively, they were the ones with the issue, not me. And, you know, my career path eventually took me out of the design industry solely and launched me right into the nonprofit, community development, philanthropic world. And I remember thinking, now in my mid-20s, that this kind of work would be different. After all, we are working on efforts to promote human wholeness and flourishing. We're working for the goodness and well-being of our communities and our neighborhoods. Surely, this work culture will be different. And yet again, I was wrong. And that period of my life, in fact, I think was where I had the most dysfunctional relationship to work and to rest. Because when your work is helping people, when do you ever really get to set that down? When do you ever really get to turn that off? And I just didn't know any difference, and I had no mentors helping me see what was wrong with the picture or challenging me to the way that I was living or modeling a different way. Can anyone relate to this? Has anyone else been in those situations or in those circumstances? Yes, okay. Again, I'm not glad, but I do feel comforted to know I'm not, uh, not alone in that. So this started to change for me in my late 20s when I landed in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Uh, I was brought up and worked in mostly northern cities, which were sort of kissed with industrialization. So, uh, you know, workers, we, we sort of saw ourselves as cogs in the industrial machine, but in the mountains and valleys of Tennessee, there was a different culture that I was exposed to for the first time, where there seemed to be a higher value placed on play and recreation. It was nothing for people, high-performing, influential people to take Friday afternoon off, when the weather was good for hiking or biking or kayaking. And this was something new for me. This was starting to open my eyes, something that I was being exposed to for the first time. But the real change, I think, in the rhythms of work and rest that had formed in me, rhythms that I had gotten stuck in, frankly, began when I met DJ. I think I saw him come in. Oh, there you are. DJ worked hard. DJ has run his own business uh, ever since I've met him. Um, but DJ seemed to have a bit more of a balanced relationship to work than I did when we first met. 
and he had some habits. Uh, he had a lot of habits. He had, but he had uh, some habits, particularly around how Sundays should be spent, that were really eye-opening to me at that time in my life. Not long after we met, DJ invited me to church, and I should say that from middle school to high school years, all the way up to my late 20s, I was not an active part of any community of faith. There was no college ministries on my campus. That just wasn't really a thing. None of my formation during what I've heard called the formative years, 18 to 25, when your brain is still developing, you're learning who you are and more about the world, none of my formation was rooted in Christ at that time. That is, until it started to be, which is about a decade ago now. So DJ invited me to church, and frankly, I was more interested in DJ than I was in church. Uh, but what I quickly saw at that little Anglican parish in Chattanooga, Tennessee, was a group of people active in the city, people doing creative, wonderful things in their communities, who also seemed to know what it meant to breathe, to pause, to play, to keep Sabbath, to stop and remember that God is the one keeping this whole thing going, not us. That was game-changing for me. And I was so wired to operate in a certain way at such a high-performing level that when this new environment started to cut against that way, it really turned me upside down. It really flipped me inside out. I didn't know that there were other ways to be. I didn't know that there were other ways to work or to practice rest. And this was also quite a challenging realization and painful, painful in its own way, because I think there's a pain that comes with seeing parts of yourself that you didn't know existed, right? Or seeing habits in yourself that are actually getting in the way of your own development or your own flourishing. It's also difficult to look honestly at parts of ourselves that we don't particularly like or understand. And that's what was starting to happen to me in that particular area around my relationship to work and my relationship to rest. I think if we allow them, these are inflection points on our spiritual journeys, on our life journeys. It's the moments when eyes open, when we see something more clearly as it is, not what we think it is, and we become aware that something in us needs to change. That, I think, that's the beginning of transformation. Pay attention at those moments. Pay attention, because God might be doing something. He might be forming a new thing, and the new thing might be you. Eventually, we would move to Cincinnati, where this community, this faith community, really became the primary formation ground for my life and my faith journey, including my relationship to work and rest. Much of what I've learned now in the last decade or so has been from watching many of you live and practice, watching leaders here, even those that have long since gone, live into more healthy rhythms of work and rest and learning from them. It's, it's discipleship 101, right? Follow me as I follow Jesus. Do what I do. That really happened for me here, and I'm really grateful for that. But I would be lying if I stood up here today and told you that I have got it figured out because this is an ongoing struggle for me, practicing rhythms of rest. I battle with it all of the time. DJ once said to me, I've never seen someone try so hard to rest, which pretty much sums it up. Um, it's very easy for me to link my value as a person to my productivity, my goodness as a human with how good or successful my work is. And those are very dangerous lies to flirt with. Those are very dangerous lies to flirt with. But as I said, the grip on some of those unhealthy habits have uh, started to loosen through the years, and I think that's the work of God's grace in my life. And I think that's come from doing two things. If I had to take credit for just two things in that process, it would be this. Again, watching others live out better 
live this out better and learning from them, putting myself underneath people that I think are doing this well. And then the second thing is looking to scripture to see how Jesus lives this out. So let's do that now in the time that we have left. Um, you don't have to look too deep into the Gospels to understand that Jesus knew something about the value of rest. Do a quick scan of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you will find phrases like, and then he went off to rest for a while, and then he drew away to a solitary place, and then he went up the mountain to pray and be alone with God. It's all over those four Gospels. And so many of us who have some just foundational level knowledge or foundational level exposure to scripture, we know this about Jesus. So this week, I want to encourage you actually to do more than just study the passages about rest. Do more than just look for them. I want you to notice the rhythm. Choose one of the four Gospels. Mark is the shortest, so you could start there. Read it. Read it cover to cover and see if you notice anything about Jesus's rhythm during his ministry. What I see, what I see from my study is that Jesus and his disciples, they go out and then they back away. They preach to the crowds, they heal the sick, they cast out demons, and then they retreat to a secluded place to rest. They go out and they go in. It's a bit of an accordion motion, or a tide washing in and out of a seashore, if you like, or a breath, or a pulse. It's an inward, outward motion. Take a look at that this week. Just see. See if you notice that. And specifically this week, there's a passage in Mark's Gospel uh, that has really been speaking freshly to me. I love when that happens. Um, and I want to share that with you all. And I'm trusting that there's something here for each of us here. So it looks like John, thanks John's already got it up there on the screen. So we're in Mark 6. I'm going to read verses 7 through 13. Uh, skip a little bit and then finish up in verses 30 to 32. All right, so just listen if you'd like or you can follow along on, on screen. I'm going to be in the NRSV. Here's what it says. He, that's Jesus, he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed them, and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. Picking up now in verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. He said to them, Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a deserted place by themselves. All right. I love this story. I love this story. As an aside, DJ has a great story about being sent two by two. You'll have to ask him about that later. Um, but here we have Jesus calling his disciples to action. Right? I love this part of God's nature that we see clearly incarnated here in Christ. He calls us to join him in his peacemaking, healing, reconciling work in the world. We say it around here all the time. God is looking for partners, and he is. I don't really get that. God does not need us to accomplish what he's up to in the world, but he chooses us. He says, come along. I've got a job for you. And then he sends us out. 
Does anyone remember take your child to work day in elementary school? Is that still a thing? Does that still happen? Yes? Okay. That was the most exciting day of the year for me. Getting in the car with my dad instead of getting on the school bus that morning, walking through the halls of his school. He was a teacher. So meeting his students and his colleagues, I was so proud and I felt so special to be alongside my father. I didn't do much of anything. I was no use. My dad certainly did not need me there to do his job, but he wanted me there anyway. And he invited me along. I think that's God's relationship with us. And we see that so wonderfully here in this passage. Jesus calls his disciples forward and then he implores them to go. He gives very specific instructions. There's no parable here. He says, here's what you're going to do. Cast out demons, heal the sick. And apart from that walking stick and those sandals, don't take anything. I've got you, Jesus says. You don't need what you think you need. And they go. They go out on this ministry tour. And then they come back. They gather again. And they tell Jesus everything that they've done, everything that they've taught, everything that he has asked them to do, they have done. And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 31. He said to them, come away to a deserted place all by yourselves and rest a while. I find this a very curious response. I also find it curious that I've never noticed it before, but I will keep my theory to myself about why I think that is. Why does Jesus command his disciples to go off and rest right after they return from their first ministry tour? I think there's an obvious answer. Jesus is teaching about rhythms. They're not done with their mission. These disciples, they're just getting going. They're just beginning their ministry, and right out of the gate, Jesus is teaching them what's going to be required of them if they're going to sustain this call that he has given to them, that he has placed on their lives. He's preparing them. He's equipping them. He's showing them how to operate if they're going to carry out this mission. Rhythms of going out, caring for people, feeding people, teaching people, challenging people, followed by a rhythm of coming in, resting, being alone, stopping. We can see that very clearly in Jesus' life, and so it makes sense that he would teach his disciples the same rhythm. This is a lesson, I think, to put it in words we would understand, this is a lesson in sustainability. It's an important one, rhythms. But I think there is another lesson. I think there's another lesson Jesus is teaching here, one that's maybe not quite as obvious, but one that I think is equally, if not more important. I also see Jesus here teaching a lesson on humility. In my experiences of working under a boss or a leader, there tends to be a way said boss or said leader responds when I effectively do what I was asked to do. Usually, usually if they're kind leaders, some kind of positive acknowledgement is offered, right? A word of praise or affirmation. Good job. Thank you. Well done. I don't necessarily need those affirmations, but I think we all can agree That's, that can be encouraging. That can be helpful and go a long way sometimes. So that's sort of the first thing I've come to expect from a boss or a leader under whom I'm operating upon completion of good work. You know, you did it. Good job. Thank you. The second thing that often happens, especially if I have performed well or done a good job, is an almost immediate assignment of the next task. Has anyone been there? And typically, if I've proven that I'm competent, that I can carry the responsibility that's been given to me, this often comes with more responsibility. 
Generally not a pay raise or a job title change, just more responsibility. Are you with me on this? Have you been in those situations? Okay. Jesus doesn't do either. He does not applaud his disciples for a job well done. Neither does he pile on the next assignment. And to be clear, there is more work to be done. Just keep reading Mark. There's miracles about to happen. There is more work to do. But in that moment, Jesus does not send his disciples back out with more responsibility. He calls them to rest. Why? This has been bothering me all week. Why? <laughs> the clue for me, the clue for me is in verse 7, right up there at the top of the screen. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The authority that the disciples receive does not belong to them. The authority to do what Jesus has asked them to do does not come from them. The authority wasn't given because the disciples were particularly capable, high-achieving, or high-performing people. The authority was given with a specific purpose, and it was given by Jesus. It belongs to him. And no amount of success or obedience or job well done changes that reality. The disciples, even in their mission, even when they're out in the fields doing the work, they fall under the authority of Jesus. If Jesus would have applauded the disciples upon their return, and I've been imagining this, if Jesus would have like slow clapped them in when they come, you know, good job. You did it. How might that have impacted the formation of those disciples? I don't, I don't know. I don't actually know. <laughs> what I do know is how praise and celebration of my work has impacted me. And sometimes my hungry ego gets a snack. That's how it impacts me. That's how praise and affirmation and job well done can impact me if I'm not careful, if I forget who gave me the ability to do the work in the first place and the skills to do the work in the first place. We can honor God by praising God for everything he has given us that enables us to live and to flourish and to say yes to the call that he's placed on our lives and by pointing to him when we're successful. We can dishonor God when we forget that our skills and our abilities and our careers, they're gifts from him to be used for his glory, for his kingdom advancement purposes. I think Jesus, who knows us better than we know ourselves, was being very kind here by not applauding. He wasn't withholding affirmation to be inconsiderate, but out of love and concern and care for the disciples' development and formation. He was teaching them, I think, a lesson in humility. If Jesus would have immediately handed over the next assignment to these disciples upon their return, how might that have impacted their formation? Once again, I don't, I don't know. I don't totally know. What I do know is how being assigned increased responsibility on the heels of already carrying a lot of responsibility has impacted me. I forget that the world and everything I care about in it does not rest entirely on my shoulders. I forget that the authority I am given as a leader isn't mine to hoard or laud over other people. I forget that if I must make a mistake, the world won't crumble. I forget that success of my work or my family or whatever I'm doing isn't entirely up to me. I forget, I forget, I forget when too much responsibility rests upon me without adequate time and space to recover 
from carrying that heavy responsibility. When we carry too much, we lose sight of the one who holds the entire world in his hands, upon whose shoulders the entire universe does rest. I think Jesus, who knows us better than we know ourselves, is being kind here. He's reminding his disciples the same thing Paul reminds the church in Colossae. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers of power, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. By calling his disciples to rest after their good work, Jesus is reminding them that God is God. They are not. The best definition of humility I have ever heard is a right understanding of who we are in relation to who God is a right understanding of who we are in relation to who God is. God is God. We are not. And so, yes, our work matters. And yes, God is looking for partners. And yes, we have a call to be the hands and feet of Christ in this broken and battered world. And God calls us to rest by peaceful streams, to boast in our weakness, to rely on the Spirit for strength, to remember that Christ is supreme, the one who keeps this whole creation project going. And this is very good news. This is very good news for the tired and the worn out and the weary. You can take a break. You can set it down. You can rest knowing that our God of peace has got it under control. God is God. We are not. If God has called you to do it, he will give you what you need to do it. And I think abiding in that truth and really resting in that truth is the most at rest that we can be, is the most at peace that we can be. It has been music to my ears as a leader, as a wife, as a friend, as a daughter, as someone who cares about the goodness of my community. That is good news. So we started this morning with a question. When it comes to practicing rhythms of rest, how's that going for me? I'm just going to end with the same question, and I want to encourage you this week just to reflect on that, pray around that, go before God in prayer, sit with it, listen. When it comes to practicing rest, What does that look like for you? How is that going for you? You are loved. You are enough. You are worthy. You are a child of God, a child of God. Rest in that truth and the peace that comes from that truth. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, we are going to move now to a time of confession and communion. Here at UCC, we gather around this communion table week after week, every single Sunday, to remember to remember what Christ has already done for us and the new life that's made possible because of that. So if that's your story, or if you want to make it your story for the first time, or if you want to remember that it's your story, I invite you to come forward as the music plays. Take the bread, take the juice back to your seat, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Before we do that, I invite you to stand with me if you're able, and we'll speak a word of confession aloud. Merciful God, In your gracious presence, we confess our sin and the sin of this world. Although Christ is among us as our peace, we are a people divided against ourselves. And we cling to the values of a broken world. The profit and pleasures we pursue lay waste the land and pollute the seas. The fears and jealousies that we harbor set neighbor against neighbor and nation against nation. We abuse your good gifts of imagination and freedom. 
of intellect and reason and turn them into bonds of aggression. Lord, have mercy upon us. Heal and forgive us. Set us free to serve you in the world as agents of your reconciling love. In Jesus Christ, amen. As the music plays, come on forward.